0: i liken this a lot to when people say oh saturated fat and i'll tend to say things like well we don't eat saturated fat we eat food we eat food that contain saturated fats and similarly we don't eat anti-nutrients nobody is just taking a big dollop of lectins and putting them on their plate we eat foods that contain nutrients (laughs) and some of those compounds are going to be these other
1: things that occur in nature Hello and welcome to your Great with your host Unique Hammond. I am very excited about this space. I created it for those seeking tools on their healing path and inspiration, something that I had very little of when I was healing my autoimmune disorder Crohn's disease and endometriosis. I found out along my healing path that healing my body was a little more complicated than I thought because there were emotional aspects that were getting in the way and spiritual aspects as well. So I found that alongside healing, eating to heal my physical cellular body, it also took digging deep and healing my emotional body and my spiritual body as well. So welcome and thank you for being here today. I wanted to take a deeper dive in plants, specifically anti-nutrients. I was beyond excited to sit down with Dr. Deanna Minick and pick her brain about these plant compounds, coined antinutrients. I have been on a plant-forward diet, the Mean Protocol, for the past nine and a half years. And intuitively, I found myself just disbelieving the rhetoric around anti-nutrients. It just didn't ring true. Having an autoimmune disorder like Crohn's disease and some of the claims being about gut inflammation, you can imagine that I took a pretty deep dive on the topic and I came up really grasping at papers for something that actually made me not wanna eat, all of the legumes and the plants that I was eating to help in my healing process. But what I did find was promising research for the gut and you know, bringing down inflammatory markers and being colon cancer protectant. And for someone with Crohn's disease, looking at foods that can protect me against cancer, colon cancer, really was of interest to me. I was excited to discover the paper that Dr. Dan Minick had co-authored with Weston Petrosky in 2020. At the time I read it and I felt a deep sense of calm, like, yes, thank you for digging through all the literature and really putting in one place all of the information in a very succinct way because many in the health space demonize plant foods and these so-called anti-nutrients but if you take a deeper dive into some of the studies that are referenced they're isolating this one plant compound and testing it on rats something that a human would never do in real life because we don't isolate compounds we eat whole foods and a whole food is much more than just one component it's full of so many nutrients and the benefits outweigh any possible downside and i still think it's very early on in the study of these quote-unquote anti-nutrients to really make claims that all of these super healthy foods are indeed not healthy foods that humans have been eating for hundreds maybe thousands of years i am passionate about eating plants as a conscientious omnivore because i always endeavor to make plants the lion's share of my plate. I have attached the review for your pleasure because I found it incredibly knowledgeable. Gives all of the different ways that if you are worried about these, quote unquote, anti-nutrients, that you could cook your food and prep your food so as to have as little as possible. I currently soak and pressure cook my beans. I enjoy them that way, but I've eaten them a lot of different ways. Personally, over the last nine and a half years, I've never had any issues at all. If anything, I am in the most vibrant health of my life. Dr. Deanna Minnick is an internationally recognized teacher, author, scientist, speaker, and artist. She has more than 20 years of diverse, well-rounded experience in the fields of nutrition, functional medicine, including clinical practice, research, product formulation, writing, and education. She has authored six books on health and wellness and over 40 scientific publications. Currently, she serves as an advisor to various food, academic, and health organizations and teaches as faculty for the Institute of Functional Medicine and the University of Western States. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Dr. Deanna Minnick. I am so honored to have you here today. I've been following your work and I just love it. I love your dedication to really breaking down the science and helping people understand the science in a very simple way. I feel like a lot in the health world is complex and overly complex and a lot in the medical world is overly complex. And you've found this really beautiful way to bridge science and the human health and experience. Thank you for the work that you do. Well, thank you so much, Unique. It's it's really wonderful to be here
0: with you. I feel like we're on a similar wavelength and it's great to bring this information to your community. So thanks.
1: Well, we are a legume plant-loving community. And in this legume plant-loving community, there has been a lot of question around anti-nutrients and a lot of concern because there are very big names in the health community that have gone out of their way to demonize elements of whole foods and whole plants. And so when I saw your review on PubMed that you co-authored, I was very excited because it felt like a really open-minded conversation around these anti-nutrients and dispelling some of the confusion around them and actually really bringing out the benefits.
0: Yes. And I think it's good to set the stage with the fact that I am not dogmatic about eating. In fact, being in nutrition science for many decades now, I can look back and see when I have been very dogmatic. I've been on many different types of diets. Mm. But I think at this juncture, like where we are now with nutrition, what we see is that it's about personalization. So we're always needing to reevaluate where we are with food and eating, how we prepare that food, where we are in our life cycle, our monthly cycle, where we are in that day. So I come from the place of not being wedded to a certain paradigm that would enforce vegan, vegetarianism, paleo, keto, omnivore. You know, really, I like to put my arms around all of it and really look to the science and say, okay, what can we not arm wrestle? Because I think we can arm wrestle meat. We can arm wrestle dairy. We can arm wrestle soy because I can cherry pick studies to support either side of those arguments. But one of the things I don't think that we can arm wrestle effectively is that of eating more plants in the way of fruits and vegetables specifically. And then, of course, that category can expand a little bit into legumes, whole grains, herbs, spices, nuts, seeds, and all of that. But I do think that this is why I went after the eating of the rainbow concept, because I began to see that it was strong. It was solid in the science. So that made me more comfortable.
1: Yeah. Obviously there's a lot in the natural world that can't be consumed by us because it's toxic or dangerous or whatever, but I really don't see the majority of the plants that we consumed and have been consuming for hundreds of years, I would assume as being any of those things. You know, I think there are certain people with different health ailments that can not eat certain things. And then, but ultimately what I find, and I don't know if you find this, cause I work with people every day with a variety of, undiagnosed or can't diagnose or don't know what's going on, gut issues. And ultimately, they're able to expand back out to a very broad diet and not kind of live in that narrow, more of a healing protocol situation. Have you found that as well?
0: Yes, absolutely. In fact, with many of these anti-nutrients, which I know that we're going to get into, oftentimes I'm wondering if the food is almost like a messenger that there's something awry in the body. So we get this alert and then we think it's the food, but it's really our physiology that maybe we need to bring something back into balance. And the gut microbiome, we're seeing that it's a pivotal piece of so many different body systems. It's the body's first connection with that food. So I, I do think that looking at the gut and, and just even lately, you know, I had posted on my, uh, my Facebook page that I had had something with eggs mm-hmm. and somebody had remembered that I had an egg allergy. But I worked through that, you know, we, we can move through a number of sensitivities and tolerances, allergies that depends on the individual, of course, and it depends on how they work with their healthcare practitioner. So nothing I say it's to be construed as any kind of advisement or therapeutic guidance. It's really something that it's a journey and we can heal. We can move into eating different foods, depending on our gut microbiome, our health status and even the quality of certain products that we're eating.
1: I I agree with that. I had Crohn's disease that I heal naturally. And in the period where I was inflamed and active, I've been in remission now for a long time, but I was allergic to everything, which really speaks to that gut permeability and how when food is getting into the body incorrectly through incorrect pathways, that the body mounts a histamine response, right? Like eggs was one of them for me for a long time where I had to rotate them in, but I was so limited on foods that it was ultimately rotating foods in and rotating foods out and rotating foods in and rotating foods out because the laundry list of food sensitivities was so long that I wouldn't, I would be drinking just water. So, so, and now I can eat everything and anything. I don't have any food sensitivities. I have spent such a long time really fostering a healthy gut biome and mucosal lining and bili that they're gone, which is, to me, (laughs) Mm mind-blowing. Yeah.
0: And and hopeful for many people to hear your story, right? It's achievable. And you mentioned something that's really key there that I have seen clinically and scientifically, and it's that of rotational eating. It's that of what I would call micro-rotation, where much like you, I've had clients where they come to me and they've been to many different practitioners and then they start to whittle down the foods that they can eat. And then they're, they're left with like five to seven different foods. And then they have fear about those seven foods and whether or not they're going to be able to eat those for very long. So one of the things that I've moved into is that food variety, food diversity is one of the key aspects of nature. And in fact, it's very protective So one of the reasons why I think that anti-nutrients have made the scene is because people are on food jags. They get into these, these spurts of eating all things kale, all things celery, all things tomato, because they know of the Mediterranean diet being very healing, right? So then they get into these food patterns where they're eating the same thing day after day, because they think, well, it's healthy, so I should be eating more of those things. But actually, what you would see in the literature is that dietary diversity helps us with nutritional status. It helps to prime the gut microbiome to be more, I would say it, it's creating not a monoculture, but a polyculture in the gut. So whenever we have phobias about certain foods or we're afraid that we're going to react, one of the things I like to think about is just the, the concept of variety and how protective it is. And it is in all things, I I believe, you know, within the plant kingdom, we have so many different options. So it's kind of like, okay, well, if you can't have broccoli, because you have sensitivity, just like me, I had sensitivity and allergy, actually to cranberries. Mm. But then I started to think about, well, all of the many berries I could have, and all of the many red colored foods, I'm not just limited to one thing. And that's the beauty of nature is that We have a vast palette of colors and options presented to us.
1: And all of them coming with their own unique nutrient profile. And to me, I just, I love that. When I go to the market or the farmer's market and I see all of the variety, I definitely, these days, because I can eat, I can eat the rainbow. I go and I kind of, I definitely have preferences. I won't lie, that I definitely get caught in, you know my morning greens. Every morning I have a, a sauteed kale, rainbow chard, and usually two types of kale I'll have in there. And I'll have that with my breakfast every morning, this rotation of dark leafy greens that I cook. And I can definitely get stuck in ruts where I'm like, I'm eating all of these vegetables, but if I step back and look, I'm like, they're all similar all the time. (laughs) So then I'm like, okay, it's time to, next time you go to the farmer's market, I have to challenge myself to buy the opposite. Like what have I been eating, find like the opposite of those or not the opposite, but just like a very different variety. And then I'll start making stir fries with that or whatever. But the variety is the most amazing part because if you're, if you're eating this incredible variety, you're giving your body all of this amazing opportunity for these different nutrients, which come with these different protectant qualities. So I, I love the challenge. I, I definitely, I can be a creature of habit.
0: Well, I think we all can, right? It's safe. And, and especially if you have a some kind of condition or illness or symptoms mm-hmm it feels kind of safe just to kind of lodge yourself into a certain way of eating with foods that are known to be okay for you Mm -hmm. But to keep in mind that your gut lining is turning over every five to seven days. So Mm -hmm. you essentially have a fresh start. And so to rebuild the gut, you're constantly sculpting the inside of you, which makes the outside of you. So, and I think that variety is not just the foods that we take in, it's how we prepare them. And that's where anti-nutrients really come into this Mm -hmm. discussion is because we have removed ourselves societally in many ways from the ancient or the traditional way that many foods were prepared. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that, because we're doing high amounts of raw food smoothies in isolation, and we're doing like 12 ounces of them, not just a little dose, but we're doing large amounts on a consistent basis. And then we have the context of maybe a very limited diet or other things in our diet. So I think that it's the variety can come in many forms. It can come into the foods that we're eating, how we're preparing those foods. And then maybe even the time of day that we're taking those in.
1: Oh, interesting. So when you mean ancient, would you say, would you, would that refer to more cooking foods versus eating them raw? It can. Yes. Like fermenting and boiling Mm -hmm. and steaming. If you look at
0: much of the literature on what we would call Mm anti-nutrients, many of these things can be inactivated in foods when they are prepared in these ways, like, you know, soaking and allowing legumes to sprout will help in the reduction of many of these different compounds right so allowing these things to be removed and typically you potentiate some of these things with grilling or high heat you reduce many of these anti-nutrients with soaking or steaming or boiling like using water moist methods of heat Mm -hmm. that help to remove a lot of these water-soluble compounds so shaking it up you know if somebody is used to doing lots of raw smoothies, changing that up a bit and making sure that you've got some cooked food as well. Because I always get that question. That's another big question is, okay, Deanna, out of all of these foods that I'm eating, all these plant foods, should I have them raw or cooked? Don't I destroy them if they're they're cooked? But actually you just get different things. Mm. You get more fat-soluble types of compounds. So you get vitamins A, D, E, and K. You get the carotenoids. And for some, those fibers that are in plant foods, they tend to bind things up. So with heat, you start to unlock that and make things more accessible. Mm. Goldilocks principle is just not too little, not too much, just right. You know, just having a little bit of raw, a little bit of cooked, some steamed, but I do like
1: to shake up even the methods and the ways that I cook. To go back to the smoothie thing. It is interesting to see people walking around with these massive smoothies because I think you would never sit down and eat that much fruit in one sitting, or potentially even the raw vegetables that are in there. You wouldn't sit down yes. and eat. It's 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 a wild, and it's interesting because I feel like over the years I've just watched it grow the size of the cup. Where I'm like, wait, when I was young, I'm 46, it was smaller, like it was a little cup of juice or a little cup of smoothie or whatever. And now I just feel like it's these massive smoothies that people are walking around with with the assumption that it's healthy because it's all of this natural stuff, but that much fruit and that much, I mean, that's a lot going into the body at once. It
0: is. And it's a lot of sugar into the body. If it's not a smoothie and it's more juice, but I mean, the fact that it's particulated makes it more readily absorbable, right? So it's going to move into the body quicker, even if the fiber is there. So it's not that I'm against smoothies, but I do think that making sure that we have adequate quality protein and fats, I mean all of the things that your listeners already know about, making sure that we resemble and bring back that whole food matrix as much as we can. And that's where fiber to me really stands out. You know, really you know, sometimes people even get lodged into one type of fiber, like they do psyllium all the time or they always do flaxseed meal. Mm-hmm. And again, this is not creating diversity in the gut. We really need to cycle through even supplemental proteins, supplemental powders that are fiber mm-hmm. in, in nature or in origin. I think that that is really key is to have that diversity. I think it's very protective. Mm-hmm. And another thing that it's protective for that I teach on is toxins.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So the toxins in the environment, I mean, back to like the 1990s when people thought butter was bad and you know, Anytime we do one thing all the time, we become prone to either the all of the advantages amplified or all of the disadvantages amplified, which is why diversity is really bringing in that protective effect and then preventing us from having too much of something coming in, even environmentally, whether it's a heavy metal or something like a paraben, a phthalate, some plasticizer that's made its way into the environment. And I even apply that into my personal care products. I rotate. I am not brand loyal, but to the detriment of of companies, you know, I like to rotate products because I do think that again, having different ingredients, you know, it's just better for the body to be to become more resilient in that diversity.
1: I also think that it it disperses the nutrients as well, right? So that you're if you're not just getting fat soluble nutrients, you're getting water soluble, you're getting a balance of if you're just focused on eating one way, then you're constantly getting the same nutrients over and over again without that diversity, which I think does speak to resilience of, of our bodies to be able to... A lot of my clients are unwell and seeking wellness or seeking balance. So a lot of times we'll start off with you know more of a healing plan and then as time goes on in their healing to really expand that to fan it out to bring in more diversity. I have a lot of clients come to me stuck in fog map land where they just yeah. can't get out and it's you know yeah. that slow introduction of building that resilience in the gut. it's hard because many of those people have immune
0: issues. so autoimmune issues and, And typically, you know, there's more diligence or there's more vigilance around things like anti-nutrients because they're told, you know, no lectins. And so the amount of foods that they can have, whether it's a a gut autoimmune condition, so it's low FODMAPs, and then it's like, okay, you can only have these foods. And if you look at the literature, at least on young children, what you see is that the more diverse their palate and their, their foods that come in earlier in life the more protected they are from different immune type of issues. I do think that the immune system needs to see a lot coming in in order to be able to become resilient and react better.
1: And also maintain that throughout the life. I mean, I don't know about you, but in my 20s, I I was raised really healthy. My parents were really on it with diet. And when I left home, I joked that my my book should have I wrote a book. It should have been called Snickers for Breakfast, because they were just like no sugar. And, you know, as soon as I left home, I was like, Snickers? Oh my God, that's the best thing I've ever tasted. And I never liked fast food. I wasn't raised on fast food, but I remember just kind of like falling off the rails with sugar, like having this mad love affair with sugar. And when I got sick, I could really look back in my history from when I left home to the time I was diagnosed with Crohn's of how I had lived. And I had lived in a very, what I thought was kind of pseudo healthy based on what my peers were doing. And you know I was the healthiest of my peers, so I thought I was doing really well. And I look back and I'm like, wow, it was sugar, it was alcohol, it was coffee, it was abundance of things, but no great variety and no focus on health. So my gut and also just, you know, every time I saw a doctor and they said, oh, you're not well, take this antibiotic. And I was like, yeah, sure. That's great. I can go back to work or whatever. Never really contemplating my incredible microbiome and the work it was doing on my behalf, but how important it was for me to actually feed it, to give it the nutrients and the information that it needed to protect my health and my well-being and my inflammation markers and all of these things that I didn't contemplate until suddenly I was like, whoa, what did I, what did I do?
0: Well, you know, interesting, because we've had somewhat of a similar path, because I also grew up with very health conscious parents. Although as a child, a lot of that health conscientiousness led to a lot of stress for me. And it led to an eating disorder. So I think that we have to always look at the crosstalk between eating healthy, how we eat, and to what degree of stress that we have in our lives. Because even eating healthy is one piece, but it's not the whole piece. You know, we hear a lot of this food is medicine being bandied about, right? And so then we people may start to think, well, if I didn't get well, is it because I didn't find the right diet? I didn't find the right foods. And I do think that we have to be thinking about lifestyle, how we eat, when we eat, the company in which we eat, how stressed are we? I mean, stress can really change our digestion. It can change the milieu of the gut and you know the gut microbiome response to that stress so it's not just the food the food is a great foundation but if we are not dealing with the larger picture of the stress then i think it's really only one piece of the multifaceted aspects of who we are
1: absolutely i was listening to a podcast recently and they were talking about if you tested you know students in a master's program their gut that they would have more inflammatory markers because of all of the stress, right? Yeah. And so it's interesting because to, to get to your practice, what you have to go through really tears the health down directly, right? All of that pressure, all of that stress, everything you have to do to get through, to become a doctor or to become a Chinese medicine practitioner or to become a functional medicine doctor, the actual road to get there. Can really mess with the whole health process, which is mind-boggling to me. I'm like, how do we make it so that that's not the case? You know?
0: Yes, it's so counterintuitive to have people going through medical school and and training and even doing more nutrition and lifestyle work, and yet not having that being brought into the programs. You know, I even think about it with health conferences. You know, I'll go to a health conference, and and from early morning to late at night, and then there are dinners at night. It's like, wait a minute, I thought. <laughs> I thought we need to walk the talk and really like eat well when we're at this conference, not hamburgers and hot dogs. You know, it, it always surprises me, right? So it's that consistency of message and being more thoughtful, you know, less is more. Just focusing on the quality, I think is is really essential every step of the way. And just to go back to what you said about gut issues, I think that they're pervasive. And I do think that they have the all of these different Whether it's a food aspect, the physical, the emotional, the mental, and perhaps even the spiritual. You know, when I talk about the rainbow, I do reference that in relationship to eating and to foods. But I also think about the rainbow relative to more of the full spectrum of ourselves and what that means in our everyday lives.
1: Yeah, the emotional. I look back at the healing process, and I think it wasn't just the food; it was the the connection to food. I had a disordered eating past as well, and it was seeing the fact that my disordered eating had nothing to do with food, but it had to do with my disordered relationship with myself. So, in the process of healing my gut, I really healed my relationship with my body my physical body, my relationship to nourishing my body and my spiritual body as well. I felt like it was a real, it was an entire spectrum. And I know that you, you've you mentioned it a few times. I don't know if you want to talk about your own healing journey at all. And I know we definitely want to talk about your the incredible paper that you co-authored, the review on lectins. So start wherever you want. Sure. Well, I can let your audience know
0: just a little bit about me. So Yeah. I grew up in the 1970s with a a health net mom. And at the time she would have been called a health net. Now she's not. (laughs) Now she's like, oh, you were ahead of your time. But at the time it was Richard Simmons, Adele Davis. It was the whiter, the bread, the quicker you're dead. And I was kind of on the fringe growing up. And my parents were also very religious. They were into food and faith.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yes. In my teens, I didn't want to be different. And I, I felt like you know I had these these parents who were into things that were different. And so I kind of went off on my own and I started binging, especially on sugar, sugar and chocolate, chocolate. I mean, Oreo cookies, that was like my thing. <laughs> you know? So then, but I was always very interested in my body and I started having health issues even within my teens. So I started having a lot of reproductive health issues. So I would have dysmenorrhea, which is, you know, essentially having difficulty with the menstrual period, a lot of cramps, it was really about sugar. It was about just not being in the know about certain things, and so I had gut and reproductive issues. I had irritable bowel syndrome, and what later became a diagnosis: endometriosis, which is an inflammatory condition that's connected to the uterus. And you know, it's interesting now because when I look back mechanistically, it makes perfect sense that women who may have reproductive issues, whether difficulty with their periods, with their, with just fertility or area uterine type issues, there may actually be gut issues because those organs share the same space as the gut. And now that I know that there's leaky gut, I, I think, well, why can't there be leaky ovaries, leaky uterus, because mm-hmm. it's all sharing the same terrain. Mm-hmm. So if there's inflammation in that part of the body, because of the gut, how could there not be inflammation in the reproductive organs? And for me, that was just the target. So I had a lot of difficulty with both of those two body systems. I went on to study science. I was pre-med and then I decided kind of last minute, to, to go and study nutrition, which was kind of odd because I was so rebellious and repelled against anything my mom said. And I was a rebel in, in that respect. And so I went on to study nutrition in graduate school and I learned about carotenoids. So carotenoids are the plant-based pigments that we find throughout nature. They tend to be red, orange, yellow, and even green, And I studied carotenoids with Dr. Phyllis Bowen and Dr. Maria Saponzakis at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And then I went on for my PhD to study essential fatty acids, which was also really interesting. And during this whole time, I still had health issues. So even though I would try to change my nutrition, I was trying out different dietary approaches because nothing ever worked 100%. Then I would say I started to get into more of the emotional aspects because I was doing a lot of nutritional things, but you know, I had to look in other places because it just wasn't working. So I started doing acupuncture, I went for a massage, especially Mayan abdominal massage, where you can really get into the pelvic area. Because having endometriosis, I had a lot of adhesions, I had a lot of inflammation, and in fact, it even got to the point that my left fallopian tube became blocked with these adhesions and started to swell. So I started to get other things going on. So, you know, just as part of my emotional health and and strategies there, what I ended up doing was I started painting and I started to, I, I would say in my darkest, deepest time of a lot of introspection, I became more in tune with colors. It's almost like I had to find something to pull me out of this This darkness, this depression, this anxiety. And colors became my healing vehicle. And I began to paint really bright, brightly colored paintings and just on pieces of paper. And yes, I (laughs) whenever I was stressed, I, I began painting and I would dedicate that time to do that. So, long story short, my husband made a note about some of my paintings and he thought I was painting my body parts. He said, Deanna, you're putting your ovaries in your uterus around our house you know and and i and i didn't even see that i could have been painting something inside of me going through this turmoil so i began to use art as my divining rod into my healing process and i expedited it i began to connect with my body through these colors i even began seeing people as colors and i began to gift people certain people with paintings of what I believed was their color or what color was healing for them. So I I would say with a marriage of having this nutritional aspect of my training in combination with the color really brought me into this whole platform that I would call the rainbow diet and really seeing that there's power and potential in the beauty. It's not just the science of how we eat, but it's the art too. And what I was really missing out with a lot of my health issues was to be in the flow, to be in this mind state that really liberated me. And I think I I grew up with a lot of rigidity. My dad was a police officer. My mom was very religious. We always had a lot of discipline and rules. I went to Catholic school. I wore a uniform. You know, everything was like putting me in a box. And the art, the color allowed me to expand and to feel very free. And it became the portal for how I... A lot of my emotions to express so i would say that my healing journey really involved not just food and this is why i say it's not just food is medicine food is powerful medicine but it's not the only medicine community is medicine emotional expression is medicine how we think needs to be looked at how we move our bodies how we sleep how we spiritually connect and feel interconnected with all of life i mean all of those things are really potent in their own ways. So I, I would say for me, my life's journey really opened me up to the full spectrum of many different healing modalities, as well as the, the full spectrum of foods.
1: That is so beautiful. And it does sound like you actually liberated yourself in the healing process from from, you know, I think our parents do the best they can, but a lot of times it's their box that we're growing up in, right? And ultimately that coming home to ourselves is Shaken off that childhood box that the parents, with great intention, put us in and becoming truly ourselves. And it sounds like your healing process was really also a coming home to yourself as well, and discovering yourself and expressing yourself in a way that was healing for you. And also, it sounds like the painting. Is your way that you can not only connect with yourself, but calming, like calming the nervous system and connecting, which is such a huge part of healing, is is that parasympathetic, that that state of calm, which so many people are achieving with meditation or whatever else. It sounds like paint. I don't know if you meditate as well. I would imagine you would, but it sounds like painting is that meditation in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, very beautifully said. I, I did feel like I came into my own through the painting and Painting is a form of meditation. My husband is, he likes music and I like the visual arts. And so for me, it's all about, you know, just getting messy on canvas too. And I I don't think I've had a lot of messiness in my life. It was always about being perfect. It was about, you know, again, fitting into a box. And the beauty of painting is that, you know, the kind of painting (laughs) that I have is not, you know, making a house or making something in nature. I just make this more chaotic you know, it's more feeling and energy oriented. So yeah, there there was something about that. And I love my parents, you know, my, my parents are still living. I just spoke with my mom this morning. She lives in Chicago. I live in the Seattle area. So we are constantly in communication. She's still really healthy. We, we have health conversations. So we go back and forth on certain things about what we think about certain foods. So, you know, I think I I chose my parents. Well, (laughs) they gave me what exactly what I needed in order to have this this journey that I'm on. And I've learned a lot too, through having them.
1: I agree. I agree. I think as hard, as difficult as that medicine is, I think our parents do set us off in, in, in with all the lessons that we need to discover who we really are. Yeah, you know? absolutely. What was it about anti nutrients and, and co authoring the review on anti nutrients that was speaking to you? And, and what did you ultimately discover? Because I saw that you literally went through lexins and oxalates and phytates and phytoestrogens and tannins. What, would, what was your biggest takeaway with studying all of these anti nutrients?
0: Well, a couple of things. Number one, this was the biggest question I would get whenever I would talk about eating more plants. And by the way, you know, again, just to bring it back, I'm not about people going vegan, vegetarian, eating in a certain way, but I do talk about eating the rainbow, and that does involve eating plants. And plants to me are the common denominator, they unify us. So I would get all this pushback about, well, Deanna, what about the lectins? Deanna, what about the phytates? I get a lot of angry comments about oxalates. You know, you're not acknowledging oxalates. So I thought, you know, this is all coming forward for good reasons. So Weston Petrosky was a graduate student at the time, and I teach at the University of Western States. And I said to Weston, let's just dig into the science because we are hearing a lot out there. Different people are saying different things about lectins or about oxalates. And I just want to know the truth. I just want to know, is there science? Is there clinical work to suggest that maybe we should be a little bit more cautious about eating certain plants? So we identified the, the culprit anti-nutrients. So just to give what those are, and you already listed a number of them, what we covered in the paper was lectins, oxalates. Goitrogens, which typically come up when we think about thyroid function. Then we had the, the phytates, the phytoestrogens, the tannins. We thought about putting histamines in the paper as well. You know, the, the definition of what is an anti nutrient is, is kind of broad. And in fact, I, I even question whether or not it's a good term because is it anti, is it against nutrients, or are these just compounds that we don't fully understand? So let me just give you a case in point and we'll we'll go through each of them quickly. So let's just take because for each of them, they may have merit, they may have something good about them, but when the food is not properly prepared, they they may exhibit other qualities. And, and I do think again, unique, that personalized nutrition is really the way to go, that we are constantly need to be evaluating that no one food is good for everybody. So I liken this a lot to when people say, oh, saturated fat. And I'll tend to say things like, well, we don't eat saturated fat. We eat food. We eat food that contain saturated fats. And similarly, we don't eat anti-nutrients. Nobody is just taking a big dollop of lectins and putting them on their plate. We eat foods that contain nutrients. (laughs) And some of those compounds are going to be these other things that occur in nature. And the thing is that in nature, nature is so wise and plants are like the divining rod to really help us, I think, to survive better. Because one of the things about plants is that many of them can't move. So they have to create other compounds that help them to survive better against whatever pests or environmental stressors they have. And many times they, they are these anti-nutrients that we refer to. So like the glucosinolates, which are typically found in the brassica family of vegetables, like the crucifers, things like broccoli and cauliflower and kale and Brussels sprouts. Well, those glucosinolates are incredible. They, they defend the plant in its environment. And if we look at a lot of the literature on glucosinolates, we can see that they have these anti-cancer type properties. They help us to metabolize hormones in our body in certain ways. But if the vegetable is not prepared adequately enough, and, large, and we're taking in large amounts of these, there can be this goitrogenic type of an effect. The, the only thing is that I, I would say that when Weston and I looked at a lot of the clinical trial data to see whether or not eating lots of cruciferous vegetables led to suboptimal thyroid function, we couldn't find a whole lot. But what we did find was that people who had other thyroid type of conditions, for example, if they had low iodine status, they were going to be more prone to the effects of these brassica vegetables. So it's something to think about that maybe it's not just the compound, but maybe there's something else in the body that we're reacting to.
1: Well, lack of a, like an imbalance, right? So, if you're not, which yes. a lot of people who don't live near the sea or don't eat a lot of sea food or even seaweed can tend to be, or I, I guess some people do iodized salts. I'm always thinking about the caking materials and those, but that you're not getting, a lot of people won't get enough iodine in their diet naturally, right? So, if you have this iodine deficiency and your thyroid is already not being supported properly through diet, then you bring in a food. And I I believe it's also uncooked brassica, right? That is more. Yes. Uncooked. Yeah.
0: And and the trick with cruciferous vegetables, as we have subsequently learned through people's publications is that a lot of those compounds can be beneficial like sulforaphane, Mm -hmm. but sulforaphane, we don't get from cooked brassica because we destroy myrosinase, which is the enzyme that breaks down those glucosinolates, the glucoraphanin into sulforaphane. So there's a little bit of a hack here. One of the hacks that we can do is we can take raw broccoli, cut it up. And it seems like the more we cut a vegetable, like the brassica, the more we subject that poor plant to mechanical stress, and we're cutting it up, the more because it's living, it's going to defend itself. It's going to produce more of some of these compounds. But in this particular case with something like sulforaphane, if we cut up the broccoli and we just leave it exposed to oxygen, we allow that morosinase to come out of the cells and start to convert these glucosinolates into sulforaphane. Now we can cook those brassica vegetables and still get the benefit of the sulforaphane Mm. while at the same time inactivating the goitrogenic type of glucosinolates that we might have concerns about. The other one that I think of that most people aren't as aware of would be tannins. And I just want to talk about tannins for a second because I was reflecting on that because I knew I would be talking with you this morning. And every day, even on my desk right now, I have a huge cup of green tea. And I think about the populations on the planet that consume a lot of tea, which you know, green tea epigallocatechin, gallate, you know, a lot of these polyphenols we're hearing about. And when we think of the gut, I think of the three Ps, probiotics, prebiotics, which are the fibers, and then polyphenols, cocoa, berries, herbs, spices, teas. Well, those things have tannins. And when we think of tannins as an anti-nutrient, much of the issue here is, but aren't they going to reduce mineral absorption? But on the on the other hand, these, these foods can be bringing in other compounds that may help to offset any kind of blockage of those particular minerals that we have concerns about, right? So I think about in, in countries like in Africa, where they have set staples in their diet and they're eating lots of things like millet, or, you know, again, certain of these plants in formats that are Perhaps not conducive, right? But in our more, I would say, Western societies where we have the ability to cook, ferment, autoclave, you know, use water, stewing, steaming, boiling methods, we can help to really offset a lot of these. And, and again, a lot of the foods that these anti-nutrients are in may actually be very beneficial foods. You know, tannins are polyphenols. We know that most polyphenols don't get absorbed by the body. They make their way into the colon. They are then metabolized by the gut microbiome. And then we get the systemic effects from that metabolism. So much of these anti nutrients, their activity will be determined by the composition of the gut microbiome. So if we have a healthy gut microbiome, we may not actually see some of the detrimental effects. And if we, we we might even see some of the amplified beneficial effects like with phytoestrogens. So the isoflavones, when they, when the gut microorganisms take off the sugar group from the isoflavone, it becomes more active and actually have more benefit and American versus Asians, there's a different type of conversion there with some of the soy isoflavones, which may in fact be related to why we see greater benefit in something like the Asian population. That's just a big generalization. And if people read the paper, they can go into more of the detail about what we saw in the literature. And that was a paper that was published in the nutrients journal in -hmm. 2020. So it's, it still is very current. And I see that there has been some other interest in the literature, people publishing more on anti-nutrients because it is becoming a bigger thing.
1: Well, and I think it's just very misunderstood because some of the early literature that I was reading on it, they were isolating these anti nutrients and they right. like injecting them, and you would never, you would never do that in real life. I would never just pull out anti nutrient and try to eat that. Of course, it would be, it, it would not be, good. it would not be good, right? So. This idea of like, oh, this is, these plants are bad because it has this anti-nutrient when in fact you cook it and it's part of the matrix of this incredibly nutritious food. And, and like you said, the process of how we how we handle these nutrients is as important as the nutrient itself and understanding why, when you were talking about the broccoli and how to prepare it, I also understand that you could do broccoli sprouts instead, which have none of the, if you were worried about the anti-nutrient, but all of the saporophane benefits, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the tannins, which is an interesting one. I recently saw a doctor saying that, you know, if you are nutrient deficient and you're loading up on tan, you know, something like tea or chocolate which have tannins in it and you're eating it close to a meal, you might be blocking some of that iron absorption. So then just to kind of create a window of a half hour or so away from having the tea or the chocolate. And it's so funny because when in the world, when we talk about anti-nutrients, nobody ever talks about chocolate. It's like. <laughs>
0: <laughs> chocolate is
1: the sacred, sacred food, right? Yeah. It's like, it's well, <clears> bad, <throat> but chocolate, it's amazing. It's so good for you. I must be craving magnesium. And I'm like, oh.
0: <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. But it, you know, it is a repository of many different things and tannins would be one of them. You know, I do think about heavy metals and cocoa, but then all of the benefits of those cocoa polyphenols how it opens up the blood vessels, it creates better blood flow to the brain. There are there was one study I I saw where they took dark chocolate versus white chocolate and showed how just even after about a month of consuming either that the dark chocolate led to better nerve growth factors Mm. in those people. So it could have better effects on brain health, nerve health. But again, the quality, quality says so much, right? So if we're choosing chocolate that it's not organic, organic, it's loaded up with dairy or with sugar, then we may be mitigating
1: some of the effects of the cocoa polyphenols and the things that we may actually need. Where do all these heavy metals come from? Because cocoa, it's a pod. How would you end up with all these heavy metals in a pod? So heavy
0: metals uh, are things like mercury, arsenic, lead, cadmium. Cadmium is the one that tends to concentrate in cocoa, the cocoa bean. And these metals are pervasive. They're in everything. They're in food, air, and water. So the very nature of having rainfall and then you've got it, the, the metals in the air, and then they come down in the distillates of the, the raindrops. And then that food incorporates those, those constituents, like rice. Rice is also very similar, right? Grown in water that may contain arsenic. It's not the plant. It's that what was in the environment that it took on. And we're similar. I mean, people are like plants. We take in whatever's in the environment based on what we're breathing in. And plants will help us to bind a lot of these things the, you know, there, there was also an interesting study. Some of these polyphenols, like we're speaking about with the polyphenols in cocoa, in berries and herbs, there was just a study that I saw and it was an animal study. So it's not something that we know about in humans yet, but that they may be helpful in the gut for offsetting some of the allergenicity of certain food constituents, So I I just think that they're doing more that we don't even realize. Dr. Mark Hyman just launched his gut food, which has polyphenols in it. So it's like, you know, how much do we move away from tannins? Because, but I like what you said about making sure that if we do have concerns about mineral absorption and that is compromised. And I do think we have to think about minerals because essential minerals like calcium, zinc, iron, magnesium
1: will compete with heavy metals. So we don't want to deplete our minerals. Right. Oxalates actually help chelate heavy metals from the body. And yes. and 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 that's such a benefit to us, especially since we are basically living with air and dirt and, and water being filled with heavy metals, that it's part of our, it's just part of everything now, right? It's like you're not going to stop drinking water and you're not going to stop living. It's just, our, we just have to find better ways of supporting our body. But I thought that was really interesting and would love to hear your thoughts on that.
0: Yes, and in fact, that's perhaps why the plant formed those oxalates is because it was part of its defense mechanism. One of the issues with oxalates, there can be some issues with people who have sensitivity. There are some people that are hyperabsorbers of oxalates. And so that might be incurred in, in more kidney renal issues. One of the more protective aspects is number one, the boiling and the cooking, you know, that can help with reducing oxalates. So making sure that you you don't have a lot of raw spinach, that you're actually steaming, cooking a lot of these greens. The other thing is to ensure that you have enough uh, calcium in the diet. So 800 to 1000 milligrams coming in through food or supplemental sources, because oxalates not only like heavy metals, they like calcium. And calcium looks like some of these heavy metals because it has a very similar chemical structure in terms of the, the, it being a divalent cation. So it's just attracted in that way. So if we are more sensitive to oxalates, we might want to look at, do we have enough minerals in our diet? Because having more minerals like calcium can, again, help to offset that. So it's back to what we were saying before we might actually be getting a signal of an imbalance on some level through these these different compounds.
1: But the very foods that we need to eat with all of these nutrients and minerals in it, don't they often come with a side of a potential anti-nutrient? They do. So as an example, those greens tend to have the the
0: calcium, right? So it's (laughs) like we can get more balance that way then it just, it's up to us to prepare the food in such a way to, again, if we have some kind of sensitivity. And I think that, you know, our bodies are wise. There can be things that signal to us, like, like I could have said that, oh, my reproductive tract was, was weak and it was too vulnerable, but actually it was probably one of my strongest organs because it let me know early that there was something wrong. Right. And I just wasn't giving it the right inputs to respond. And it was, and I think the similar way about anti-nutrients, if we're reacting, there's something we need to be looking at. And you know, I, I don't want to discount though that people can be allergic. Dr. Aristo Bajdani is an immunologist who did a lot of this work with Dr. Datis Karazian and others. And they did find that isolated lectins can cause immune responses in certain people.
1: But again, isolated, is isolated meaning, yeah, isolated. Because I would, you know, unless you're eating a raw legume, you're not really, you know, which is toxic and poisonous and probably going to be vomiting and all sorts of lovely things for days. But you would never eat a raw legume, which I feel like that's where things can become toxic is is sometimes in their raw state. And obviously, they have merit as well. Raw foods. I know that I, for one, for two at least two years, I ate five foods maybe. And I could only eat cooked foods because my gut was in such a bad state. So I think there's also something to be said for knowing when you're healing and knowing, you know, when you're branching out, like I knew that I couldn't eat eggs, but, but a funny, I don't know if you've ever run into this where I discovered that if the, if the chicken didn't eat soy or corn, and was sprout fed that I could actually eat the egg. So there was something, and I only figured that out because I started experimenting with that rotation diet, but sometimes it's what the animal is eating that I found that I was reacting to versus the thing itself, which was fascinating. One of the things that I wanted to talk about because I know we're running out of time is phytate. And because I've been reading recently that it's actually colon cancer protectant and that there was a a study published in the British Journal of Nutrition about the possibility of it helping the mucosal lining and reducing inflammatory cytokines. So I'd love to hear your take on the phytate. Yes. Well, that's actually
0: the double-edged sword nature of these these compounds, right? That there may actually have benefits. Like even lectins are being explored now as part of cancer therapies. And so that's being looked at at more of like an in vitro cellular level before, you know, clinical trials. We haven't seen that. The same thing, like you mentioned with, with phytates, you know, looking at the gut effects of, of them, we are all going to be staying on the pulse of this, because I I do think that we're going to find out some very interesting research along these lines of seeing that, wow, there might've actually been some benefit as to why that plant had that, why we ate it, why it initially had a response in us and what it's doing in isolation. And can we use that therapeutically? So absolutely. With, with phytates, people get concerned about them in cereal grains and in, in a variety of things because they may seem to bind certain actives, especially the minerals. But again, using the strategies of cooking, I, I think we can help to offset
1: that. But yes, I'm curious, Unique, what we're going to see in the coming years. I am as well, because I think there's a lot of nutraceutical, you know, there's a lot of benefits to these things that I think we're, we've been kind of scared of. And I am ultimately fascinated to see if, if some of what they bind with is their own minerals and their own nutrients. And it, if we're eating this big, beautiful diet with all of this variety and nutrients Really, how much are they really binding to, and if you're eating super calorie restricted and super restricted in your variety, then maybe there's a problem but i I can't imagine that in a healthy person with a healthy gut lining eating an abundance of nutrients that it's really probably binding up to such a small amount of whatever the ultimate you know nutrients going in. so if you're banking all of these nutrients, how much is it really interfering in it, in this? you know, colorful rainbow approach to eating and, and are they as bad as they, they seem? And I, I really, I have such a hard time when I, when I see it out in the world, demonized, I have such a hard time taking it seriously because I feel like it's just a hustle. And and there are people who are sensitive. I've had clients who are sensitive to oxalate buildup and, you know, and I've also heard that making sure to stay well hydrated, that a lot of it is yes. processed. Right, through the urine of like, if you're not hydrating and you're eating high oxalates, you know, stuffing a ton of them into your smoothies and they're raw and you're not processing them properly, I could see how it's a problem. So I'm definitely not recognizing that. But I think that there's been a great disservice in the world of people demonizing these incredible foods with so many benefits.
0: Yes, and I think we have to remember common sense and just to keep it to the basics. And you know, again, personalized nutrition. You know, even the carnivores out there are still getting plants because those animals are eating plants. So I always come back to, like, <laughs> what is the what is everybody getting out there? I mean, in essence, it's plants, and we have a large kingdom to choose from within all of those different categories. So yes, just to leave your listeners with three things that I like to bring to every. Podcast every interview, and that would be number one color. You know, to use color as a gauge, color is used in the plant kingdom in order to signal antioxidants, reducing inflammation. You know, those are pigments that are highly concentrated and can be very medicinal. So there's color. Then number two is creativity. So getting a little bit creative about our food preparation, how we put things together. And number three, I would say variety, just to have us come full circle on that. So having one new food a week, being around different people, doing different things on a day-to-day basis, I often say that food ruts can be life ruts. So when we change our food, we can change how we're living, or if we change Mm -hmm. our life, we can change how we're eating. So color, creativity, and variety, I feel like are protective principles, and can enable us to really come into that place of eating more of a full spectrum palate and then really having nourishment of our physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual selves.
1: Yeah, so- integrating all of those. Yeah, that's beautifully said. I do have a question. In in my healing journey, I did eat pretty simple for a while while I was healing the gut lining. Do you feel like there is merit in in simplicity as a way to to move towards that greater variety? Yes,
0: I'm glad that you mentioned that because when I was at the clinic many times what I had to do was I called them mono meals. So one or two things in a meal just to get people just healed and feel and actually psychologically feeling more secure about their food and their body response. And so typically it was a protein and some kind of simple vegetable just to kind of keep those and then we would grow from from that point into bringing in other foods and greater complexity. But yes, sometimes I do think having more simplified eating. You know, people get really nervous about food combining. Like I put on my Facebook page one of my breakfasts, and people were saying, "What? A, you have fruit together with protein? How can you do that?" That's like, if you've got your gut microbiome and it's robust, and you can tolerate things then you can have the complexity and small amounts of those things would actually be building the diversity, Mm -hmm. right? You know, back to what we were saying, it's actually building health rather than tearing you down. But we may need to start from a certain point where, just like you said, it's okay to start simple
1: and then build from that point. Well, it's not getting stuck. I think, like you mentioned earlier, a lot of times people get stuck out of fear, you know, that they don't want to diversify their diet because of of fear, you know, and when you start to, and I can relate to this, because once you start to feel good, and your gut is feeling good, you're like, oh, well, maybe I'll just, and, you know, so I would challenge myself of like, add one new thing, you know, every four days, or whatever it was to kind of slowly bring it out, because it's not just about having more foods to eat. It's about having more nutrients to give. So it's that really, you know, important relationship between our bodies and nourishing our bodies properly. So, and and breaking out of those rules, like food combining, I do get that a lot. Unique, you, you know, that shouldn't go with that. And I'm like, <laughs> well, now that I have a healthy gut, I really just listen to it. And if it doesn't like something, then I have a deeper conversation around that. But really, I find that now that I have a healthy gut, I can kind of challenge it a little bit and put all kinds of nutrients together. So, yes, you're amazing. Thank you. Wow, This has been (laughs) a great
0: conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much for reaching out and for bringing this information to your community.
1: Oh, I'm so excited to share it. And I will be sharing the paper. And again, thank you so much. Thank you. Take good care. Thank you. You as well.